Now I'm going through Nehemiah 10 through 13, four chapters, uh, ten, yeah, four chapters, and um, it's a lot, but we're gonna, I'm gonna try to boil it down to the essentials for you. So, Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39 says this. We will not neglect the house of our God. And then Nehemiah 13, 11 says, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we saw just a few moments ago in the reading from Daniel that you are the king of all kings. You sit undisputed upon your throne and we are here as happy um, as those who are glad under your submission and under your rule. And we know that one of the primary ways that you express your rule over us is through the preached word, is the reading and the giving of the sense of these words. And so I pray that you would grant me the fullness of your spirit to unfold these words faithfully and that you would give your people the fullness of the spirit so that they may hear them. Because without your help, we cannot hope to um, walk in faithfulness. Now we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Okay, now we've been going through the book of Nehemiah and now we have got to the end. But before we do all of that, before we get into the text, let me tell you about bones. Um, a couple of years ago, I was playing basketball with some friends, and um, there was a great collision on the court, and it was between me and this other guy, and when I pulled away from the collision and it was over, my hand, my left hand was on fire, and when I held it up and I made a painful fist, I could see my ring finger going this way, and I figured I, figured I had jammed it pretty bad, um, and, uh, but regardless, I couldn't play anymore. So I went home. Uh, Aaron told me, you got to go to the doctor. So I went to the doctor. I got an x-ray. And sure enough, there was a spiral fracture in my hand that had caused my, my finger to rotate this way. And so I went to the doctor the next day. They set the bone in its proper place. They put a cast around it. And then six weeks later, the bone was good as new. Now, I mean, probably a lot of people have had broken bones in here, but that is absolutely fascinating to me. The bones, you, you put them back together and they grow back together and then all of a sudden they're a bone again? I mean, I, I asked my wife, who is a nurse and a teacher of anatomy and physiology, how in the world does that happen? And so she pulled out her computer, showed me a PowerPoint all about bones. <laughs> and she said a lot of words that were too complicated for me to understand, but here's the gist of it. That, that bones have these little cells in them God help me, I cannot remember the name of them. Um, it doesn't matter. And that, that when the bone is broken, those cells start reaching out for one another, and when they find each other, they grasp onto each other and set the bone, and there's all sorts of stuff that happens. But eventually, those, those cells come together, the bone comes back together, it grows and it heals, and you have a bone that is as good as new. Um, so I asked her, Okay, so if the bones do that of their own volition, then why do you need to set the bone and put a cast around it? And she said, it's the same reason that we get stitches for a bad cut. If you can apply some sort of outward brace, 
two, to keep these two pieces of flesh or bone together, then those healing cells have a much easier time of finding one another and completing the healing process. Now, isn't that astonishing? I mean, my mind was blown. Okay, um, now, now here at the end of Nehemiah, uh, we end on something of a tragic note. The whole arc of this story has been the return of the children of Israel to their beloved city of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the city wall in order to protect that city. And last week we saw that after they had completed the wall, something astonishing happened. There was a revival in Jerusalem in Ezra. The priest read from the book of the law and as the people heard the law of Moses, they broke down weeping and they raised their voices in lamentation because they realized that they had broken the covenant. They could see how plainly their ancestors had rejected the law of God and and brought their sorrows on their own heads. But Ezra and Nehemiah tell them, do not weep for the Lord has brought you back into this land. And what we're going to witness today is the last part of that story, the, the renewing of the covenant with God and his people, and here's how it goes. So basically at the end of chapter nine, this is the part that Matt didn't get to last week, um, at the end of chapter nine, we get the entire narrative of God's faith, or excuse me, of God's covenant people, um, and there's a, a pretty significant refrain that goes through all of it, namely, that God has been faithful and his people have been unfaithful. God has been faithful, his people have been utterly unfaithful to him and it happens again and again and again. The Lord brought them out of Egypt with a, strong, with a strong arm and a mighty hand out of the house of slavery and then you flip over a couple of pages and they have made a God out of gold and they're dancing like pagans before it. Then the Lord gave them manna to eat and water from the rock to care for them. And then the Israelites complained that they're bored of this miraculous food. Then later the Lord sent prophets to his people to warn them, to call them back, to say the way that you are living is not good. If you continue down this path, the Assyrians, the Babylonians will come in and they will cart you off into exile, but the Israelites stiffened their necks, stopped their ears, continued with their covenant-breaking behavior, and the judgment came, swift and terrible. The Assyrians and the Babylonians poured into the land of Israel, destroyed the temple, destroyed the walls, and took the people off into exile. But the Lord, in his grace and his mercy, sent a remnant back to the land to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. Now that's the story that's at the end of chapter nine. God has been utterly faithful, merciful, long-suffering with his people. And the people have done nothing but reject him, stiffen their necks, and go in their own way. And all those years, after God had delivered them from Egypt out of the house of slavery, the people then, in chapter nine, recognized two things. Number one, this was our own doing. We brought this upon our own heads. We are covenant breakers. God's judgment is just. And number two, we have become slaves once again. It's a great circle. And we see that in chapter nine, verse 36 through 37. He says, Behold, we are slaves this day. Like, like the temple is rebuilt, the walls are rebuilt. We are in Jerusalem, but we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, 
we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. And so they do what their ancestors before them have always done. They renew the covenant with God. We see that in the next verse. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Essentially, they, they rehearse the long history, the long narrative of, God's, of the people of God's unfaithfulness to the covenant, and they say, this day, never again. We will never break covenant like our ancestors did again. And I mean, come on, can you relate to that? I mean, can you look back over the entire course of your life and see this long trail of broken promises, the long road of idolatries and iniquity? And haven't you come to the crossroads at some point in your life, maybe today, I don't even know, but haven't you come to that crossroads and you're like, but not again, never again. You can see all the destruction that has occurred. You can see all of the sorrows that you've inflicted never again. And they mean it. They really mean it. It says that they wrote this covenant down and they inscribed in it all the names of their princes, like the people in charge, the Levites and the priests. Like there is total buy-in on this renewal of the covenant, total buy-in from the leadership. And then... In the first part of chapter 10, we actually see that all the names, we see all the names that are written there. They actually give them by name, not just categories, but here are all the names of the princes and the Levites and the um, priests. And then we see that starting in verse 28, that not only were the leadership invested in this, but all the rest of the people committed too. So verse 28 and 29 says this, the rest of the people The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes." Whatever else you may think, they are dead earnest. Never again. We will not be like our fathers and mothers. We will walk in faithfulness to the covenant. They, they do what covenant making does. They say, may a curse, may the curse of God come upon us if we break the law. And then they tell us exactly what the sins are that they are forsaking. Now listen carefully to this. This is in chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And, number two, if the peoples of the land bring in any goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. And then three, we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Then we skip to chapter 13 at the beginning, the first three verses, and we see more of what they're going to forsake. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. 
And as soon as people, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Four sins they will avoid. This is their commitment. They will not marry foreigners. They will cease profaning the Sabbath. They will stop the practices that cause the impoverished Israelites to remain in their poverty. And then fourth, the mingling of their assembly with the Ammonites and the Moabites. But they also write down not only the sins they will avoid, they also write down the virtues they will assume. And now this is a longer portion, so so get comfortable. Here we go, verse 32 of chapter 10. Here's the things that they are going to put on, the virtues. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly yearly a third part of the shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. So in other words, all of the... All of the work of the temple, all of the feasts that are given to us by Moses, by law, we will will now keep them. We the priests, verse 34, the Levites and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. Um, excuse me, to, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of the ground and the first fruits of, every, of, all fr- of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. I mean, just pause for a second. All right. Do you feel, like as we go through this, are you feeling the weight of their commitment? We will do this and we will not forsake God. Verse 37, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor and The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites. And when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. So just to summarize... They've promised never to marry foreigners, never to forsake the Sabbath, never to engage in practices that keep their brothers and sisters in poverty. And on the positive side, they've promised to support the functioning of the temple with their offerings, bring the Levites their tithes, and the Levites must bring those tithes and offerings into the chamber of the storehouse, important. And then they make their great declaration, which brings us back to our text from today, Nehemiah 10, 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. That is their great declaration. And because they had renewed the covenant, they rejoice. This is a a matter of great rejoicing. We see in chapter 12, verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. It was a massive celebration on this renewal of the covenant. 
they did what they promised that they would do. And if you've ever been in a similar situation, you know their joy. You understand this great rejoicing. Never again will we do what our fathers did. We will walk in the ways of our Lord and we will rejoice. And all was well and they kept their promise. They did. I mean, that's what chapter 12 is about. They did all of these things. Nehemiah had put in place a structure of covenant faithfulness and the people were faithful. But then Nehemiah left. And we're not told why he left or what his errand was, but we're told in 13.6 that he returned to Persia to have some kind of audience with the king. And in his absence, with the removal of the structure of covenant faithfulness, everything unravels. While Nehemiah was away, we find that every sin that the people promised to forsake, they embraced. And every virtue that they promised to take on, they forsook. In the first part of chapter 13, we see that Eliashib, the high priest, who, if you recall, was the first name in chapter 3, when they began to build the wall, Eliashib had cleaned out the chamber of the storehouse. That was one of the things they committed to, to keep all the offerings in the chamber of the storehouse. He had cleaned out the chamber of the storehouse and had made it into a chamber for Tobiah the Ammonite. In case you've forgotten, Tobiah the Ammonite was a great enemy of God's people throughout this book. Also, in case you forgot, one of the things they promised was to clear out the Ammonites from their congregation. Not only are they bringing an Ammonite into their congregation, but into the very temple of God and giving them a place to live there. (laughs) I mean, okay, now, (laughs) Nehemiah, he also found that the people had stopped bringing their offerings and their tithes into the temple, and that the Levites, who were responsible for making the temple work, they were no longer supported in their work, and they had actually fled to the countryside. They're, They're not even around anymore. And he also found them buying and selling on the Sabbath, which in case you've forgotten your Old Testament history, it was the profaning of the Sabbath that got them into the mess of exile to begin with, among other things. He found his people marrying foreigners, giving their sons and daughters to marriage and foreigners, and then Nehemiah cries out in chapter 13, verse 11, the opposite part of our text today, why is the house of God forsaken? And Nehemiah is furious about all of this. And then he goes about redoing what he did before he left. He, he imposes the structure of covenant faithfulness back on them. He, he writes all the wrongs uh, that they had committed, and sometimes with great violence. He says that he pulled out people's hair. He beat them. He, you know, he, he was serious about reforming the temple worship, and he revives it yet again. Now, what What's going on here? That, that's the story. What, what is actually going on here? Well, I think it's this, that, that Nehemiah did all that he could to reform God's people. He gave them the form of covenant faithfulness. But the one thing that Nehemiah could never give to the people is the power of covenant faithfulness. Nehemiah set the bone 
and wrapped a cast around it, but he could not manufacture the life, the internal principle, the power that was necessary to bring those broken bones back together again. You see, I mean, if, if, dead, if a dead person has a broken bone, you can still set the bone, you can still cast it, and it will have the appearance of a healed bone. But take that cast off, and the bone will be just as broken as before. The bone must have life and inward vitality for that healing to occur. The bone must have cells that that reach out for one another and make something broken become new again. When Nehemiah left, the form that he imposed upon the people, when he left, that form left with him. And the truth was plain. No matter how much these people behaved like covenant keepers, no matter how faithful they were to the form, they did not have the principle of life that would heal their broken souls. And as such, these people who had seen the great works of God in bringing them back from exile, rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, and the reestablishment of temple worship, they became another, of the tragic, another chapter in the tragic story of their forefathers that we saw back in chapter 9. And therefore, this story, it's telling us something. It's teaching God's people to long for more than Nehemiah could give them. The people needed more than the outward form, no matter how faithful the outward form was. And if they had listened to their prophet Ezekiel when they were exiled in Babylon, they would have heard God's plan to give them the more that they needed. And we see that in Ezekiel chapter 36. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will remove the dead heart and give you a heart of flesh, the Lord says. I will put my spirit not upon you as in the people of old, but within you. And it's my own spirit within you that will cause you to walk in the way of covenant faithfulness. It was not the form that was lacking for these people. It was the life. And a few hundred years ago, the Son of God is born a few hundred years later, excuse me, the Son of God is born, and the Gospel of John tells us, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then later, in John's Gospel, we see Jesus confirming exactly what the Lord, through Ezekiel, promised. 
In John 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So not only did the life that we so desperately need exist in Jesus himself, but he came in order to dispense that life to his people, to put inside of them the heart of flesh and his own spirit so that it might not merely behave as covenant keepers, but actually live as covenant keepers. But how was it that the life of Christ was to be taken out of his body and transported into ours. Because while he lived here, all of his life, that, that life that we needed, not the form, but the life, was bound up in his body. And for the life to come pouring out, that vessel had to be broken. And with every lash of the whip, with every hurling insult, with every nail, driven through his flesh, the vessel broke. And as the blood of his life poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, all our covenant breaking, a new fountain of life was opened for anyone who will simply come and drink of the life-giving waters. And when we look upon Christ crucified, we see a body mangled, crushed, broken. And it's a picture of all the ways that God's people have ever, have ever turned to the right or to the left, who have ever been unfaithful to him, have ever cherished sin or iniquity. And if you want to see what that does to a body, then look upon the crucified Christ. And as you look upon him, believe that he died for you, and the promise of his own mouth is that you will have the life that was in him within you. Amen. Yes. And what's interesting is that Jesus is just like Nehemiah in a way. While Jesus was present with his disciples, they, by and large, submitted to the form that, they, that Jesus laid upon them. They did all the right things for the most part. The disciples confessed the right confessions. They exercised demons. They fed the masses. They walked with Jesus. They listened to his teaching. But then Jesus died and he went away after 40 days, and the form was removed. And where do we find the disciples? We find them huddled up in a locked room, terrified that somebody is going to find out who they are and come and bring persecution upon them. Even after three and a half years of walking with Jesus, even after the vessel of life was broken open, the promise of Ezekiel was not yet fulfilled. They still had within them the heart of stone, and all it took was the outward removal, or the removal of the outward presence of Jesus to prove that they still could not keep covenant. But one day, the day of Pentecost to be precise, as they were hiding and huddled up for safety, the sound of a mighty rushing wind came into the room and the very Spirit of God took up residence within them and filled them with the life of Christ. And once that happened, the locked doors could not contain them any longer. They rushed out into the streets, poured out, and began preaching the good news. And when the authorities threatened their lives and told them to stop preaching, 
In other words, to disobey the terms of the new covenant with Christ, which Christ made with them, they said, we can't. There's, there's no option here. We must continue preaching. And they kept preaching. And rather than disobey, they, they preached until some of them were stoned to death. Some of them preached until they were crucified like their Lord. And from all of this, we can see that the life had been given to them, and it was God himself who caused them to walk in his ways. Now let me try to apply this. So Nehemiah gave us the form, which he got from Moses, of covenant faithfulness. And Jesus gave us the life. We've got the form, and we've got the life. And with both, the broken bones can be set and healed. The point of all this is not to say, let's just throw out the form, because now we have the life. That's not the point. We hear this a lot today from people, I don't know if you've heard this, um, who say, you know, I just want Jesus, not religion. By which I think they mean, I want the life and not the form. And, and I don't know where such things come from. I don't think it's informed by the scriptures uh, because Jesus himself is very fond of giving us outward forms to submit to. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, pray like this. And, and he actually gives us words to put in our mouths and say. When you have a grievance, handle it like this. Here's some steps. When you give, make sure that you do it this way and not in this way. Jesus, I mean, it's hard to turn a page in the New Testament, in the Gospels, without Jesus giving us some form of covenant faithfulness to follow. And in that way, Jesus is just another Nehemiah. He sees covenant breaking, and he goes into the temple. He starts turning over tables. He makes a whip, and he drives them out uh, from the buying and the selling. So Jesus is not doing away with the form. Jesus came to provide the power, the inner life that makes obedience to the form possible. You see, at the end of the story, for the Israelites, it was a tragedy. They became one more in the long line of people who had broken covenant with God. It was only failure. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how sincere their promises, they could not Keep covenant. But then Christ came and he turned our tragedy into a comedy. With Moses, we had the form of covenant fidelity. With Christ, we have the power for covenant fidelity. And someone might say, but I don't feel like I have the power. I mean, okay, yes. Rationally, you line all those things up. I believe those things doctrinally, but I don't feel like I have the power to obey. I believe that Christ died for my sins. He was resurrected in power on the third day, but there's still a long line of covenant breaking that stretches out far behind me. And even today, I sit with the temptation to break the covenant yet again. So if Christ died so that I might have power to be faithful to him, then why do I continually forsake him? Answer. 
this life that Christ came to give us is not a magic trick. The filling of the Spirit, the heart of flesh within us, as opposed to the heart of stone, does not guarantee automatic obedience. Otherwise, so much of what the apostles dealt with in the early churches through their letters and the rest of the New Testament would be unintelligible. They're always dealing with covenant breakers. They're always dealing with people who are choosing themselves rather than the kingdom of God. Disobedience is possible even with the life of Christ within us. But the point is that now you have the life. Bones don't heal overnight. But a living bone has within it the cells that reach out for one another so that that healing will occur. Even now, right in this moment, for those who believe in Christ, the broken and disparate pieces of your heart and life are reaching out for one another because of the life of Christ. And unless Christ is a liar, they will be drawn back together again. Now, how does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen only by devoting ourselves to spiritual things, the power without the life, Jesus without the religion. It doesn't happen only by devoting ourselves to the spiritual things. Again, we can't throw out the form and focus only on the heart. Oftentimes, it's our bodies which teach us what is true when our hearts don't believe it. You arrive here every Sunday, you use your body to stand and to sing, And even if your heart doesn't believe the things you're singing, your body is telling your heart it is right to stand and sing because our Lord has been faithful to us. We use our bodies to approach this table and we use our bodies to ingest the bread and the cup. And that's teaching us, whether we believe it in our heart or not, that you are forgiven. Christ loves you. All the things we do here, all the rituals, all the customs, all the outward forms, they are the form which delivers into our hearts the truth of the kingdom of God, whether we're aware of it or not. And oftentimes we are not aware of it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ loves you. Don't you know that? He loves you. He gave up his life so that you might have it in the Holy Spirit that you might have his life in the Holy Spirit. And I don't, I don't know if there are people in my hearing this morning who don't yet know Christ. I, I don't know where everybody's coming from today. And right now, all you can see is the wreckage of your sin, the great pile of it and the guilt that attends it. And you're feeling it acutely. And it crowds out your sight from anything else. And that guilt is so crushing that you can barely breathe. But I have good news for you. Christ brought you here today so that he can help you stand back a moment from that great pile and see that the sun is dawning upon you. Maybe you always thought that Christianity was only about the form. Maybe you thought that's the only thing we cared about. And that's partially true. We, we do love the form because it comes to us from the hand of the God that we love. But our great joy, the thing that sustains us through everything, through suffering, through pain, through cancer, through disappointment, through disillusion, the thing that sustains us through everything is not the form, but the life of Jesus. 
And because of the greatness of his mercy, he has made us inexplicably partakers of his life. And that is our great joy. And if the wreckage of your sin has crowded your sight this morning, then no. If you feel that guilt, it's because Christ is at work in you even now. He is awakening you. Will you believe this morning in his saving death and resurrection for your sins? He loves you. He has set a table for you. And if you will, you will find the life of Christ erupting in your heart. Now, this table, as we come to it. This is a table of Christ's covenant faithfulness to us. The children of Israel didn't renew their covenant promises for hundreds of years. I think that tells us something about their confidence in themselves. We come back to this table every week. And I hope that tells us something about our own confidence in ourselves. Every week we return to this table because it tells us that our only hope is the mercy of Christ and the filling of his spirit. Only by his life, the indwelling and filling of the spirit can we be faithful to his covenant. So come and be reminded of the forgiveness of your sins and the life that abides within you and go out in faithfulness. Let us pray. Father, you know how even those of us who have been recipients of your great love, of your great kindness, of your unceasing faithfulness, we still have temptation. We still have impulses to turn away. But if you will fill us with your spirit, if you will cause us to walk in your ways, we will be the happiest of all people. And we ask that you would. Grant us a real sense of your love now. A real knowledge of your presence. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. We come to the table now. And if you belong to him, this table is for you. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.